morning. Genesis 17, 1 to 8. When Abraham was 90 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abraham fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abraham. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendant after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Amen. Thanks, Stevie. Well, if you, if you think you felt a raindrop, that is impossible because according to my phone, there's a 0% chance of rain today. So just ignore it. It's just an illusion. Everything's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, so we've been walking through the book of, of Exodus. And so really Exodus you can divide in, there's kind of two, there's, you can divide Exodus into two parts. There's the first part, which is the first 18 chapters where the Israelites are being rescued out of Egypt, where God through Moses is bringing his people out of Egypt. And then there's the second part, which is chapters 19 through the end of the book and chapter 40, which is their time camped at the foot of, of Mount Sinai, okay? And this is a very important, this is a very important key section of, of the Old Testament and really of, of the entire Bible, you know, um, one thing that we've talked about a little bit as we've been walking through Exodus is some different kind of Bible study tools that you can use um, as we're trying to understand these passages and also apply them to our lives. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we, we talked about how, um, how four really good questions to ask when we're thinking about how these verses apply to us are, um, what does this say about God? How is my situation similar to this passage? How is my situation different from this passage? And then finally, what should I do as a result of, of reading this passage? And so I, another kind of good Bible study tool is that, you know, we can very easily just kind of gravitate towards the passages that we find to be, um, the passages that we find to be the most exciting, you know, like the story of Samson or like, I don't know, these, these or, or maybe a, a verse that has a theological point that we think is really interesting. Um, but the authors of the Bible, they have their own way of telling us which passages they think are really, really important and deserve our, our attention. And, and that is one of the main ways they do it is by spending a lot of time in a particular setting or spending a lot of time on a particular event. Okay, so in, when you're reading the Bible, 
and you see, okay, they're spending a long, sometimes there's a big story, but they kind of skip over it or sort of breeze through it. But when you see the author really sit, really kind of settle down and start giving you details, that's your key to know, hey, this must be really, really important. Well, for example, um, so Abraham, who was, you know, the, the father of, of the people of Israel, he lived to be over 100 years old. And in the book of Genesis, there's 14 chapters that are describing the entire 100-plus-year 100 100 life of, of Abraham. So what does that tell us? It tells us that's important, right? You know, most other people don't get that long. It tells us that Abraham must be important. God really wants us to dig in there. Well, how many chapters does the Bible spend with the people of Israel camped at the foot of Mount Sinai? It's been, so, so this is one year. It takes about a year that they're, they're camped at Mount Sinai, then they kind of go off and they start wandering in the, in the wilderness. So they're there for about a year. Remember, 14 chapters for 100 plus years of Abraham's life. For the year that they spend camped at the foot of Mount Sinai, there's about 58 chapters the rest of Exodus, all of Leviticus, and then some of Numbers. So what does that tell us? That this is very, very, very important. Okay, and so what I want to do today is just so we don't really miss the significance of what's happening at, at Mount Sinai, this, we're going to get to um, starting next week in chapter 19. What I want to do today is kind of just do an do a overview and look at a few passages that show us kind of what's going on so we can have a sense for why is this so important and what's going on when the people are meeting with God at the foot of Mount Sinai. So go ahead and turn with me to, um, to Genesis chapter 3. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3. Okay, so the story of the Bible in many ways is a story of God partnering with humanity. And this is really important. So at the very beginning of, of the Bible, so Genesis 1, God creates the, the entire universe. And we kind of expect, well, what's God going to do? He's going to say, okay, well, I've created the universe, so now I'm going to come and, and rule it. It's mine. I created it. You know, I'm God, so I'm going to do that. But that's not what he does. Instead, he creates man and woman in his image, and then he says, now I want you to rule over it. Okay, so from the very beginning, God created humanity to be in partnership with him, to be his representatives, to rule over his creation according to his, according to his will. So from the very beginning, God has wanted to be in partner, he's wanted to accomplish his will on the earth in partnership with humanity. And so then in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin. And, you know, I heard a pastor, so, and basically the important thing is that when Adam and Eve sin, because God has this partnership relationship with them, it's more than just, you know, they realize they're naked or, or something like that, um, although that does happen. Um, it, it, they're essentially breaking their partnership with God. They're saying to God that, you know, it's not enough for me to be, in partnership with you, with you being God and me being your representative to rule your creation, I want to be equal with you, okay? I want to be equal with God. Why should God get to decide what's good and evil? I want to I have the knowledge of good and evil. I want to choose what's good and what's evil for myself, just like God does, 
Okay, and so when they rebel against God, that partnership is broken. Um, I heard a pastor one time describe it this way. I think this is really interesting. He said that sin, sin is not just breaking rules. Sin is picking teams. Have you guys heard this statement before? Sin is not just breaking rules, it's picking teams. When we obey God, what we're saying is, God, I want to be in partnership with you. I want to do your will. You're God. I'm not God. But when we disobey, we're saying what Adam and Eve were saying, which is that I should be able to decide what's good and evil for, my, for myself. Let my will be done, not God's will be done. Okay, so sin isn't just breaking rules, it's picking teams. Now, God has a choice at this moment. He has a choice. I mean, we're, we're, three, we're three chapters in to the Bible, and it could have all ended right there. God would have been completely justified in saying, you know, fine. Like, I, you know, if you, if you don't, it, I mean, I'll, if you want to be God instead of me, if you, if you don't want to do this with me, then, I mean, I'll, you know, good luck. I'll let you see how that goes. And just let everybody kill each other and everything would just completely be destroyed. He could have just said, well, I'll just, you know, I'll just zap you and, you know, I'll try again in a million years or something like that. Um, but, but he doesn't. He would have been completely justified in doing that. But what he does is he immediately from the very moment that humanity breaks this partnership with God, he starts working to restore that partnership. And we take that for granted because really the rest of the Bible from Genesis 3 until the end of Revelation is a story of God working to reestablish his partnership with, with humanity. Okay, and we take that for granted, but again, God didn't have to do that. He could have just said, well, that's it. You know, you're all, I, you know, I'm, you're through with me, I'm through with you. But, but he doesn't. And so God, what we see throughout the Bible, he has a plan for how he's going to reestablish this partnership uh, with with humanity, but the thing is that he doesn't um, he doesn't reveal the plan right away. He he reveals it gradually, okay. And so gradually throughout the Bible, kind of step by step, God is working to renew this partnership with humanity, to redeem us, and to w once again restore the world. Um, but we we kind of get a, a a little we get we get a little bit at a time. So he doesn't reveal it right away. We see it in, in different stages. So I, what I want to do today is look at two different, really three or, or four, you could say, different passages where we see that God is working to restore his partnership with humanity. And we'll see how he's doing it. And we'll see what that means for us today. Okay, so in Genesis 3, the man and the woman have just disobeyed God and the first thing God does, you know, they blame each other. Oh, it's not, it's not my fault. It's Eve's fault. It's not my fault. It's the serpent's fault. And, and so then God, he starts to pronounce punishments and curses on, on the snake because, you know, he, he incited Adam and Eve to rebel against God. And this is what he says. And th this might have, you might have heard this earlier when Liv was reading it and you're like, that's a really weird thing. To, to, to read in the middle of a worship set. What does that have to do with anything? People getting bit by snakes, you know, I know we're close to the tobacco trail, but, um, but the, the thing here is that from the very beginning, when God is, even when he's cursing the people for disobeying him, there, there's, there's a promise in here. There's some hope in here, and I want us to be careful not to miss it. 
So what he says, he says, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock, above, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. So he's going to be crawling, he's going to slither on the ground all the days of your life. And then look at what he says in verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, again, there, there's more going on here than just the fact that snakes tend to bite people and that people tend to step on snakes. Um, and it's certainly not, I mean, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, you know, this is maybe where people get snake handling from. Um, but th there's more going on here, and, and that's certainly not, you know, what we're supposed to get out of this. Um, there's more going on here. And, and so remember, the snake is the one who deceived Adam and Eve, who's God's enemy. Later on in Scripture, other passages kind of imply that actually the snake is an embodiment of Satan, God's ultimate enemy. And so what he's saying is that, okay, you tricked the man, the woman this time, but one day I'm going to send an offspring of the woman. So he's going to be a person. It's going to be a man. And that man is going to defeat the one who deceived Adam and Eve. So he's saying one day there's going to be a man who's going to come, who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Now the, the, the serpent's going to injure him too. Okay, he's going to be bruised, but he's going to, to bruise or he's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to ultimately be the one who defeats God's enemy and restores this partnership relationship that we have with God. So the big question when Adam and Eve hear this is, well, who, who is this guy going to be? It's going to be one of Adam and Eve's offspring, but who's it going to be? And, and again, they don't know that this is just Genesis 3 and that there's a long way to go until the end of Revelation. You know, they're, they're, not, they're not looking at it from that perspective like we are. We know there's a long way to go. If this ends here, then that's, there's a long list of credits, and we don't want to sit through that. Um, but so, so they're probably thinking, okay, then they have, they have a child. They have, they have Abel. Well, here he is, the offspring of the woman. He's the one. Surely this is going to be it. He seems like a pretty good guy. God seems pleased with him. And then he gets murdered by his brother. Well, the brother can't be the one. Well, then they have Seth. Well, maybe Seth is the one. We really, I mean, we were discouraged, but, you know, we've, we, we've kind of gotten our hopes back up. We're, you know, our faith is strong again. It must be Seth. And then Seth dies. And then one by one, all of the people that are born, you know, some of them are, kind of decent. Most of them are, are pretty evil. And one by one, they die. And nobody can be the one who restores the partnership with God and defeats, and defeats the snake. So fast forward to Genesis 17. And remember, this question is kind of hovering over, and maybe they've forgotten about it. Maybe some people think it's just a fairy tale. But this, this question is kind of hovering over the story. Who is this going to be who can restore God's relationship, his partnership with humanity, and who can defeat the snake. In Genesis 17, this passage that C.V. just read, God approaches a man named Abram, and then he changes his name later to, to Abraham, and it says that he makes, that God makes a covenant with Abraham. 
makes a covenant with Abraham. So this is a big, fancy kind of Bible word, covenant. Basically what a covenant is, is a, is a formal partnership between two parties, between two persons. A covenant's like a formal partnership. Think about like, a, like two business partners that are going in partnership together and they'll have a, a contract or a covenant. Probably the best way to think about it is like a marriage where, where each person kind of promises, you know, I will this and this and this and I will this and this and this. And then you're, you're joined together. Then you're in a, in a covenant relationship as, as man and wife. So God, he comes and he makes this covenant with, with Abram, with Abraham. And what he, what he does in verse, in verse 1, he says, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. So what's Abraham's role in this? To follow God, to obey him, to, to be blameless. And then God promises what he's going to do. And he really promises two things. First of all, he promises to make Abraham and his offspring, again, there's that word offspring, the offspring of the woman, now Abraham's offspring, to make them into a great nation. It says, you know, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant with you and multiply you greatly. And then in verse four, it says, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of many nations. Okay, so what he's saying is that I'm going to bless you so much, I'm going to ha- cause you to be so fruitful, you're going to have so many grandchildren who have so many grandchildren who have so many grandchildren, et cetera, that you're going you're gonna to have so many offspring, it's going to be like a whole nation worth of people, and I'm going to bless you and cause you to be fruitful too. Well, that's the first part of the promise, that you'll become a great nation. The second part of the promise is that he says he's going to give them the land of Canaan. Now, remember we said a couple weeks ago that Canaan's kind of like, it's, it's a very desirable piece of real estate. It's extremely fertile. It's the place everybody wants to control, everybody wants to move to. Um, and so it's a very desirable place, and God says, I'm going to give it to you. And in verse 7, he says, um, I will establish my covenant with you. And then in, yeah, and then verse 8, it says, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, I will be their God. Okay, so two things. I'll make you a great nation, and I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. So, again, fast forward multiple generations after this. You know, God, he confirms the the same promise to to Isaac and to Jacob, and then with Joseph, the people of Israel go down to, to Egypt. And you can go ahead and turn to Exodus 2 if you want. So the people of Israel, are, are they go down to Egypt, and when Joseph takes them down to Egypt, or when they go to meet Joseph in Egypt, there's about 70 people. So all of the offspring of the chosen family, because we got, okay, there's going to be a man who comes, okay, it's going to be in Abraham's family, and it's, God's going to do it by making them a great nation, by, um, by giving them the land of Canaan. And so at this point, at the end of Abraham's life, or at the end of uh, of, of Jacob's life, all of the offspring of Abraham are about 70 people. Now, over the next 400 years, they're enslaved and they're oppressed, but God also blesses them, and they, they, they just start, I mean, they, have, they just start breeding like rabbits. They just, I mean, at, at the end of, of that time, there's about 2 million. Okay, it says that when they come out of Egypt, there's about 2 million of the, of the Israelites. So there, there are enough they're, they're large enough to be a great nation, but they're not really a nation, and they're also oppressed by the Egyptians, so the promise is sort of starting to be fulfilled, but it still has a long way to go. And then there's this whole thing about the land of Canaan. 
Okay, so uh, God comes to, at the end of Exodus 2, so I'm looking at Exodus 2, 20, uh, 24. You know, the, the people, they're oppressed, and they cry out to God. And in verse 24, it says, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So it doesn't just say, you know, God saw these poor, sad, helpless people, and his heart went out to him, and he just wanted to help them. You know, that, I mean, that is happening here. But he says he remembered his covenant, this formal partnership that he'd enter into with Abraham, which is, I'll bless you, make you a great nation, and I'll give you the land of Canaan. And it's not saying that he forgot it. He's like, oh, that's right, the, the, the covenant, that, yeah, how could I forget? That's not what he's saying. It's saying that he's continuing to be faithful to it, even all these years and all these generations later. Okay, so he, he remembers the covenant. And then if we keep going in Exodus 3, if we keep going in Exodus 3, we get to Exodus 3, 8, and... God says to Moses, he reminds him of the promise that he made way back many centuries before to, to Abraham. In verse 8, he says, says, you know, I've heard their cries and I have come down, in chapter 3, verse 8, to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Okay, so he's saying, you know, I said, I'll bless you. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. I'm going to do that. I'm going to make you into a great nation. The first step is to get you, to, to get you out of Egypt and rescue you, and then I'm going to take you towards, towards this place that I promised, towards Canaan. Now, and then in verse 12, and, and where are they when they're having this conversation? So they're having this conversation on Mount Sinai. So at this point, Moses is still a shepherd for his father-in-law. But they're having this conversation on top of Mount Sinai. And then in verse 12, God says, he says, I will be with you, that is when you go back to Egypt to bring the people out, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God or worship God be with God, it's the same word, you will serve God on this mountain. So they're at Mount Sinai, and he, said, he basically says, you know, I'm going to send you back to Egypt. You're gonna, I'm going to work through you to rescue the people out of, out of Egypt, and then we'll meet back here, and we'll go from there. So when we last kind of left the story last week, where were the people of Israel? They had left Egypt, they had gone through the Red Sea, and they, were, they had just started to travel through the wilderness of, of sin. It's actually probably pronounced the wilderness of sign. And they're traveling through the wilderness of sign, heading towards the land of Canaan eventually, and they're about to get to the foot of Mount Sinai. And that's where we said, God says, okay, let's slow this thing way down. 
Let's go into super slow motion. We're going to get all the details of this. We're going to be here for 58 chapters. This is really important what happens at Sinai. Well, what does happen at Sinai? Basically, what happens is that God gives a little bit more of his plan to restore his partnership with with humanity. Okay, and that's what we're going to start talking about next week, and we'll be, we'll be talking about that for, for a long time. Well, how does this all apply to us? Um, so go ahead and turn with me to Luke 22. This is the last passage we're going to look at, and in a second we're going to take communion. So as you turn to Luke 22, you can go ahead and take out the, the, uh, the cup with the, with the wafer on top the communion elements. Fast forward to Luke 22, 19 through 20. So at this point, about 2,000 years have passed from the time that Moses had this conversation with God at Mount Sinai. About 2,000 years have passed Again, a lot of people have come and a lot of people have gone. Some people have looked really promising. Maybe this is the one that was promised. This is the one who's going to defeat Satan and restore our relationship with God. David, I mean, he really, you know, he, he was looking really good. Um, but, you know, we all know he had a lot of failures too. And about 2,000 years later, after this conversation with Moses, in the first century in Israel, which... By the way, again, spoiler alert, they make it to the land of Canaan, and that's where modern-day Israel is, okay? But once again, they're, they're oppressed by the super-powerful, quote-unquote, evil empire, the, the Romans. And at this point, some people have said, ah, this Messiah thing, that's just a fairy tale. But a lot of people, you know, this, the, the one who's going to come, ah, this is just a fairy tale, but a lot of people are really getting antsy, and there's more and more political leaders or military leaders that are standing up and saying, it's me, so let's go, you know, let's go get him, let's go fight, let's go kill him. And so the, this expectation for the, the offspring of the woman, the, the, the Messiah, as they're calling him at that point, has really reached a fever pitch. And so Jesus at this point, he's sitting, it's the, the night before he's about to be betrayed and then die on the cross, He's talking to his disciples in an upstairs room, and this is what he says. It says, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And look at this next part. It says, and likewise, the cup after they had eaten, and he said, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So remember we said a covenant is a formal partnership with God. And so how does this apply to us? You know, a lot of times we talk about the gospel, and this is true, I'm not not knocking this. A lot of times when we talk about the gospel either as we think about it ourselves, when we think about how this applies to our Christian life, or when we think about sharing our faith with our neighbors, 
the message that we are thinking of is something like, you need to believe these things so you can go to heaven instead of hell. And that's completely true. And heaven and hell are real, and we need to believe the gospel so that we can have eternal life. But I hope we see through kind of walking through this history of the partnership of humanity with God, that there's actually something more important going on, which is that we think about the, the Israelites. God didn't just take them out of Egypt and say, all right, good luck. No, he brought them into the land of Canaan to be his people. And in the same way, God saves us from our sins, not just so we can have, oh, thank goodness, I'm not going to hell. But so that we can, through this, this new covenant by faith in Jesus Christ, so that we, once again, once and for all, can enter into that personal, official partnership with God so that we can be his hands and his feet to accomplish his will on the earth, just like he intended Adam and Eve to be. And that's who we were made to be. And so, you know, a couple weeks ago, I challenged everybody to, to choose three people, choose the names of three people, and just start praying for them, three people that don't know the Lord. And again, as we think about this, our message to them is not just, hey, Jesus can fix your marriage. Can Jesus fix your marriage? He absolutely can. It's not just, hey, you don't want to go to hell, do you? Should you want to go to hell? You absolutely shouldn't. But the, the, the message that we're inviting people into is the, the, the message that we're getting to share with people is that through Jesus, you can be who you were created to be. You can be in partnership with God and you can be his tools. You can be his representatives, his ambassadors, the New Testament says, for accomplishing his will on the earth and restoring his creation. Okay, so communion is a time where we celebrate that. And so if you're here and you're a disciple of Jesus, what I encourage you to do, we're going to take about, um, let's see, we'll take about a minute. And, you know, before we take the elements, the, the wafer and the juice that represent this new covenant of our partnership with God, um, the, the Bible tells us to examine ourselves, to see if there's any any sin in our lives that we haven't yet confessed. And so what we want to do, I just want to give us about a minute just to, to sit and think and just ask the Lord, is there anything in my life that's displeasing to you? Um, and, and if he reveals something to you, again, the whole point of the blood and the bread, the, the blood and the, and the body, the, the juice and the bread, is that he's forgiven us. So if he reveals something to you, don't beat yourself up, but thank him. Say, God, thank you that you've already forgiven me for that. Okay? And if you're, not, if you're here and you're, you wouldn't consider yourself a disciple of Jesus, then we just encourage you to, take this, to, to um, take this as an opportunity just to reflect, to think about the things that you've heard, but specifically taking the, the wafer and the juice, this is something for us as disciples of Jesus. So we would, we'd ask that you, um, that you not take it today until you hopefully one day can become a disciple of Jesus. So yeah, let me pray and then we can, we can have a time of reflection. Heavenly Father, we just ask that you would graciously through your Holy Spirit, would you right now show us if there's anything in our hearts that's displeasing to you? 
so that we can confess it and we can experience your forgiveness.